This sermon was preached by Bob G. and Sarah, head pastor of Grace and Truth in Hartsdale, New York. Grace and Truth was planted in 2002 and is seeking to reach North Yonkers and Westchester County. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gntchurch.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. And I will invite you to turn in your copy of the Scriptures to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you once again for this privilege and honor to preach your word, Lord. I recognize I am but a man, frail, O oh Lord, still, still burdened with remaining sin, struggling for a life of obedience as my brothers and sisters do on a daily basis. But I look to you all now, Holy Spirit, and for your grace to enable me, enable my mind and my heart, that I may speak forth your word with clarity, with conviction, and carried along by your spirit. Use me, Lord, as a vessel of honor to glorify you and to lift up the name of Christ today. I pray for the souls of everyone here today. I pray, Father, that our hearts would be open to receive from you what you would have us to know. Instruct us, teach us, correct us. Exhort us, rebuke us. May your word have its way in our hearts. I pray that our minds would, would have be transformed and conformed to the mind of Christ and that our hearts would be moved in to have more affection for doing your will. Teach us, O God, and give us clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We have an election coming up on Tuesday. And... We are reminded of the poor choices that face us to very flawed candidates, neither which represent biblical values. This election has been presented us by many people as a choice of the lesser of two evils. Wherever, if you understand a true biblical ethic, not, there is no allowance for a, a choice of the lesser of two evils. But one thing I am glad about all of this, it's going to be over soon. I can't wait till this election is over. And either way, whoever wins the election, it's going to be a difficult road ahead, brothers and sisters. One thing has become crystal clear to me. The reason why neither candidate reflects biblical values is because the majority of Americans don't care about biblical values. 
While we can make generalizations of certain regions of our country, most of which may be true, the real reason why most people have simply accepted or willingly selected our two candidates in the primaries is because people in our country are biblically illiterate. And people are biblically illiterate because most of the pastors in our country today are corrupt and crooked and just as lost as our politicians. They have nice titles. They have high educations with letters after their last name signifying their high degrees of learning. But in most churches today, and I say this not to be arrogant, but in most churches today, which is very true, the Bible is not even taught. And in some cases, even worse, in many mainstream Protestant churches today, many pastors spend a great deal of their time trying to teach people that the Bible isn't even true. This is the context of our sermon today. You see, when Jesus looked at the spiritual state of the Jewish people, he traced it back to one single thing, their corrupt leadership. As the prophets, as the pastors, as the priests go, so go the people. They were the blind leading the blind, as Christ said earlier in Matthew's Gospel. And he is angry with them. As we saw in our reading today from Ezekiel chapter 34, God is angry with those shepherds. God is angry with those who shepherd his sheep and mislead them and, and eat them as, as, and devour them for their own profit and gain. Now, in our chapter 22, we see we're coming to the crescendo, we're coming to the end of Christ's ministry. This is last week. And what did the Jewish leaders do? They all surrounded him and, and threw at him these snowball questions. Should we pay taxes? What happens after the resurrection? And, and, they, and they're trying to trap him because they don't love him. They don't, they don't believe in him. They think he's a false prophet. They hate him because he's a threat to their power, to their prestige. And so the Lord Jesus he single-handedly dismantles every one of their challenges and tests and then throws the challenge to them. Who do you say the Christ is? Whose son is the Christ? The son of David. And, and they couldn't answer him. He silenced them and they walked away. And now the Lord, facing the crowds, takes the gloves off, so to speak. He's reached a point. He knows He knows his pointed hour is coming soon. He knows he's going to the cross. And so he takes off the glove. He'd already had rebuked them. He already had spoken poorly of them in the past. But now, in chapter 23, we have, we have just the, the, the climax and the, uh, the mea culpa of Lord Jesus' rebuke and excoriation and exposure of the crooked, false Jewish leadership. And it's not pleasant. In fact, a lot of scholars, when they look at Matthew chapter 23, they say it's the most anti-Semitic text in the entire Bible. Well, how could it be anti-Semitic? Jesus is Jewish himself. And he's taking not issue with ethnic Jews. He's taking issue with the religious establishment of Judaism, of Phariseeism, and how corrupt and how far gone it is. You see, the Pharisees, instead of believing him, him and leading others to faith, they had one goal, destroy Jesus. And they succeeded eventually murdering him, but it was God's will. And so in today's chapter, the Lord does take on. We see, we're going to see this in two parts. First part, in the first 12 verses, the Lord is going to expose them. He's going to expose their hypocrisy in the most ruthless and excoriating terms. First, he, he exposes them in verses 1 through, 10, 1 through 12 for their religious 
um, their religious hypocrisy, that they're, they're, they're charlatans, they're frauds. But in the second passage, from 13 on to the end of the chapter, he levels seven prophetic woes, and we'll look at that next week, seven prophetic woes against the Jewish leadership. Now, while Jesus' rebuke in chapter 23 is aimed at corrupt clergy, it's upon this premise we should really be asking ourselves, what does Jesus think about the vast majority of the clergy in America today? How many of those who hold positions with the title of pastor or reverend or priest are truly converted? That's a question the Puritans used to ask in the old days. It was a question of, is there... Is there truly converted clergy in our pulpits? We don't ask that because we simply assume that if someone went to seminary, we simply assume if someone is in the ministry, if someone is a pastor, they must be converted. Why would somebody want to go into the vocation of professional ministry if they are not born again, if they're not saved? Well, people have many reasons why they go into the ministry. And not all of it is good. People do it for money. People do it for their honor, prestige, for their own glory. They do it because they have their own agendas. What better place can you get a platform on Sunday morning to, to expound your own ideas, your own views, and brainwash people to see things your way? Some do it for their own glory. Some do it for money. But one thing is true. There are many pulpits, many pulpits in the United States of America today where I am sad, and I know this from my travels, I know it from what I see on TV and public evangelists, and I think every one of you who has a fiber of discernment of the Holy Spirit in you knows that many pulpits in our country are filled with corrupt clergy. And it is sad. It is sad, but thank God. On the flip side of that, I want to give you a little encouragement. There is a great resurgence too. I think in the last 10 or 15 years, there has been an incredible resurgence and, and revival almost. And, I, and, and this is not to boast, but I think Southern Seminary, which is where I've studied, I think has been the center of that, the resurgence there that's taken place throughout Moeller and so many men who are graduating and, and filling a lot of pulpits of churches that are just in dark places. So I think there's a, there's a bright spot ahead. I think we're going to see a lot of good, solid Christian men and women who are going to serve God in various, not necessarily women in the, in the pulpit, but, but we're going to see men and women, God's raising up in different areas of ministry, and I think good things are ahead. I really do believe that. And so, so I think there's a push forward, but we've seen that our country has really went down. Our pulpits have really been darkened, and this is the state that Israel was in when Jesus finds it in the first century. So today, I want to look at three marks of corruption in the church, three marks of corrupt clergy. And let's look at the first mark. The first mark is insincerity. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 2. And Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. All right, so the first mark we see here is insincerity. The first mark of corrupt clergy is insincerity. They preach, they talk a good talk, but they don't walk a good walk. They preach, they bind you up with heavy burdens, but they don't lift a finger to practice it themselves. We see here that there's a disconnect, there's a gap between the, the, the preaching ministry and the life of the people who are in the clergy. And Jesus singles out two particular groups here. He doesn't 
label every group, but he singles out particularly the Pharisees and the scribes. They are going to be the objects of his rebuke in this chapter. The Pharisees and the scribes, primarily because they're his number one opponents. So I think we need to do a little understanding, a little background to understand who the Pharisees and scribes are first before we can look at their their rebuke. Who were the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were a Jewish sect, one of many. And in the first century, Josephus, a Jewish historian, estimates there were approximately 6,000 members of the Pharisee party in the uh, Judea. Now, that wasn't a lot. That wasn't a lot of people considering how many people lived in the region. It was a minority party. um, And they were a very orthodox, a very devout, religious, conservative, theologically conservative uh, sect of Judaism. Um, they, they were known for their, their, their piety, for their devotion to religion. And they were respected by majority of people. Like if you asked a, an everyday person, oh, what do you think of the Pharisees? Oh, they're really religious. They're really good people. They are the most devout among the Jews. So they had a reputation and were respected by the everyday people. They fasted twice a week. They prayed three times a day. And they were experts. They were experts at following and keeping the law. And it was among the crowds that Jesus wanted to expose this group. The word Pharisee itself is a term that means, literally translates separatist. Their origin began during the intertestamental period. It was during the period um, when Malachi gave his last prophecy to the time of Christ. It was about a 400-year period where the word of God went silent. And it was during that time where Israel was just going through kingdom after kingdom that, that had oppressed them and that were um, subjugating them. And so it was during the time when the Greeks had subjugated uh, the people of Israel and Judea um, that they, there, was this, there was this theme of Hellenization. So when the Greek Empire took over, it wasn't just to take over people, have them pay tribute and let them live their lives. There was a, there was a, a desire to, to, to cultivate the Greek culture among those who have been subjugated among those who conquered. And this is called Hellenization um, in historical terms. And so uh, when we know when the Greeks came into Jerusalem and they conquered, um, they sought to Hellenize. That means they wanted wanted to assimilate Jewish people into Greek culture. Now that caused a big conflict for many many Jewish people. For instance, uh, in Greek Hellenization culture, um, they play. That's where we get our Olympic sports from, right? We have the Olympic Games. Those games go back thousands of years, and it was during that time, like when when Palestine was conquered uh, by the Greeks, it was during that time where they would play sports in arenas. But the little thing that we don't know is that men and women played in the nude. They played naked, and so obviously that had a major conflict with a biblical worldview that most Jews held. To expose your nakedness was, was, was shameful. It was a disgrace. It was lewdness. It was, it was sexually immoral. You don't do those things. But the Greeks saw this as a, as a, a, because of their great fascination with the human physique as a way of expressing pride in one's physical attributes and, and physical fitness. And so for many Jews, this was a, this was an offense. This was horrible. Um, but for many Jews, adapting to the Greek culture, was just, hey, that's what you got to do. You got to get with the times, right? But for a lot of Jews, they said, no, we, we're not going to do this. And so those group of Jews who initially resisted that Hellenization, that's where the Pharisees originated. 
They originated because they were separatists. They separated themselves from this ungodly culture that compelled them to act immoral, to, to, to live immoral, to worship sacrifices to pagan gods. That was what the Maccabean Revolt was all about. For those of you who know the Maccabean Revolt, which is what Jews celebrate as Hanukkah today, it was a celebration when Judas Maccabeus resisted the Greek Empire and, and they and led a group of priests to, to, to kill and destroy those who were desecrating the temple. Led under Antiochus Epiphanes V. Now with all that said, I bring it to your attention that the Pharisees had a good start. The reason for their establishing themselves as a party was very noble. And very virtuous. And in that time in history, the, the, the origin of the Pharisees was, was a good thing. They, they sought to live and honor God. They sought to honor his word. They sought to live distinguished from the ungodly culture surrounding them, unlike many Jews had capitulated to the Greek Hellenization. However, over time, the party, which originally started off with a noble cause, had morphed into something disastrous. And isn't that how... Lots of times, good causes morph into something ugly, don't they? It doesn't matter how good you start, it's how you finish. And so what originally started as something good, the Pharisee party, had, had devolved, I should say, into something ugly and something far from biblical. In their quest to be faithful in keeping God's law, they developed a system of scrupulous, detailed lists of rules and regulations that made serving God an absolute burden. So a movement can start with good motives, but turn into something bad. Now the scribes, who were they? Now the scribes, on the other hand, they were the scholars. They were the scholars of the day. These were the men who went to school. They, they were distinguished in their study of the scripture. Um, the word scribe literally means to tran transcribe something. So they would copy the text of the Bible, but they, they did more than that. They studied. They were the, the top scholars and theologians of the day. They were the ones who were the teachers and preachers in the synagogues. Now, it's clear to distinguish that while not all Pharisees were scribes, nearly all scribes were Pharisees. Okay, not So in other words, there were a lot of Pharisees who were just laymen. They didn't preach or teach. But the scribes, they were the, they were the scholars, they were the teaching class, and, and the majority of them were Pharisees. And so the two groups kind of um, interacted. The irony is that as much as they studied God's word, they failed to recognize who Christ was. In fact, they, they set themselves in opposition to Christ. They were his greatest enemies. You know, it's an amazing thing. You could study the... I almost think sometimes they're... And I've seen this from my own experience in seminary. Some guys, they, the more they study, the more further they get away from God. I'm not saying that studying could be a bad thing, but, but sometimes in our pursuit of studies, we can become so cranial in our approach to God that we, we miss the mark. We lose our focus of who God really is and, and having an awareness of, and an experience of his presence in our lives. There, God was in their midst in the flesh, and they missed it. What did Jesus rebuke them in John 5? You search the scriptures, for in them you find life, but you fail to recognize that the scriptures testify of me. You know, it's an amazing thing. There's, I actually have a book on my shelf, an excellent, excellent uh, um, scholastic work on the New Testament. It's, it's excellent. And the author is not a believer, and he makes no qualms about it. And it's actually better than some works of believers.
However, Jesus recognizes something. See, the one thing about the Pharisees and scribes is that they were the duly authorized spiritual leaders of the Jews. And Jesus confirms that. He says they sit in the seat of Moses. Well, what does that mean to say they sit in the, in the seat of Moses or they sit in the seat of Moses? Well, Moses' seat, that, that term, uh, literally means a claim to the authority of Moses. They claim to be the successors of Moses in interpreting and teaching the law of God. The symbol actually had a physical counterpart. If you went to a synagogue, there was literally a chair. In fact, excavations, recent excavations, archaeological evidence, actually found the synagogue, an old synagogue from the first century, with a, with a stone chair in the middle, and it had inscribed on it the seat of Moses. And the scribe would come and take his seat there and claim the authority of Moses in instructing and telling the people how to keep God's law. Now, Jesus recognizes that they, they have this authorized position. The question is, should they be followed? Should they be followed? Jesus says this, do as they say, but don't do as they do. Now, that's an interesting thing. Take a, take a step back for a moment. Why would Jesus say, do as they do, but don't do as they, or do as they say, but don't do as they do? It's a little cryptic there because why would they even want to do what the Pharisees do or say when they, they're teaching? Jesus had publicly condemned their teaching. I have a hard time, if you look on the surface, that Jesus is encouraging his followers to listen and observe and follow the teachings of the Pharisees. In fact, the, translated literally in the Greek, Jesus says, obey every last thing they tell you. Really? Now let's think about that. Why would Jesus tell his audience to observe the teachings of the Pharisees when within the same context itself, within the chapter 23, he slams the teaching of the Pharisees and scribes. Verse 3, he says they don't practice what they preach. Verse 4, he says they tie heavy burdens on people and won't help you to keep it. Verse 13, Jesus says that the Pharisees and the scribes shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's face who try to enter. Verse 15, he says... Those who follow their teachings will become twice the son of hell as they are. So let's think about that. And, 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 and go back and, and, I mean, just think in Matthew 16 too. What did Jesus say? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and scribes. Well, what was the leaven? And within that context, he says, they're teaching. So how could Jesus tell, how do you kind of understand that? Where Jesus is saying, follow every word they say, but in another context, if you follow them, you'll be twice the son of hell as they are and beware of their teachings. How do you level that off? There's only one way to understand this. He's using irony. Why would anyone want to follow the Pharisees' teachings is the question. Why would Jesus encourage anyone to follow their teachings? Now, certainly there were some things they taught that were good, but for the most part, their whole system of doctrine was corrupt. What he's really doing is he's speaking in irony. He's saying these men teach a difficult doctrine, don't even practice what they preach. Go ahead, follow everything they say. Think about it, right? You use a sense of irony. So you look out the door one day and you see it's raining really bad. And you look at your spouse and your kids and say, hey, it's a good day for a picnic. Now, no one's going to take me literally if I say that, right? You know I'm using irony and sarcasm. It's not a good day for a picnic. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's employing a sense of irony. Go ahead, follow their teachings. 
And the basis of it is they're so insincere, they're so hypocritical, they don't even do what they say they're going to do. They don't even live by the very things they teach. They're phonies, they're charlatans, and this is the mark of a true religious fraud. It doesn't matter how good they preach or how good the doctrine is. The real question is, is their life compatible with their teaching? This means that there are many pastors, many pastors out there who teach and preach and and sound very convincing. And you have to examine not just their lives, but also their teaching. Because lots of times people that preach a strenuous religious belief system don't even keep it themselves. Now let let me also give a caveat there. It doesn't mean that every pastor is always going to live 100% what they preach. You know, John Piper said something very interesting one time. He says, no pastor ever lives up to what he preaches 100%. If he does, his preaching standards are very low. (laughs) You know, it's an amazing thing when you're a preacher is that you have to preach these high standards of God and you strive to live in pursuit of those standards. Are you going to meet it 100%? Of course not. Only Christ could do that. But you strive for your best. But obviously when there's, a, when there's people who, whose lives are so far removed from what they preach, it becomes very obvious. It becomes obvious of their insincerity. It becomes obvious their hypocrisy. It becomes obvious that they're nothing but self-serving charlatans. And that is the first mark of a corrupt clergy. The second mark is that they're staunch legalists. Staunch legalists. Jesus further describes their approach to religion when he describes is the hallmark of legalism, binding heavy burdens on people. This is what legalism is in its essence. It is works righteousness. You see, the Pharisees taught that getting right with God depended on our performance. It depended on how much you did. These men had designed complex systems of obeying and applying God's law. In fact, they buried the word of God in their traditions. That's what Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 15. They were so concerned that Jesus and his disciples were eating with unclean hands. And he said, listen, you you guys bury, you bury the word of God in your traditions. And I'm paraphrasing that. They were so, and he uses an example to to show them and to rebuke them. Now they, they, the korban, the, the, the offering that is to be given to your mother and father is to be given to God. And so there was a there was a, a difficulty there, or there was a conflict in their own teaching. They had contrived a host of rules and regulations, and that have kept made life incredible. I mean, you this made your life miserable trying to keep all these rules and regulations, minutia and details on how far one could walk on the Sabbath, how much dirt would make you unclean. Life was strenuous and difficult. In fact, the word Jesus uses, they bind you with heavy burdens. The word bind has a connotation of binding someone in slavery. So I think that Jesus would have in mind the prohibitive nature of Pharisaic legalism. He was condemning. For the everyday Jew, trying to follow these strict regulations was a burden. And the Pharisees didn't help people. They did not lift a finger. Listen to what verse 3 and 4 says, verse 3b and 4. Or rather, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They lay heavy burdens on the people. You see, the the Pharisees were masters. They were masters of the art of avoiding burdens. See, the Pharisees, not only were they clever in devising this complex system, 
But they were also clever in knowing how to get through the loopholes and disobey God's word. They constantly found legal loopholes to avoid lifting the burden themselves but wouldn't help others. One man put it this way, they multiplied the ways in which a man may offend God but failed in helping him to please God. Perhaps the greatest burden of all was fear. The fact that they carried these heavy burdens on people, people lived in constant fear that they would not please God enough and not be accepted by the Lord. Now compare this with Jesus Christ and what he teaches. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can't you see that text which we read so often as an appeal for people to come to Christ and be saved, if you understand it within its context, it's a repudiation of Pharisaic legalism. He's basically offering the Jewish people a completely different way of coming to God. Instead of carrying these heavy burdens that the Pharisees put on you, come to me if you're heavy laden and I will give you rest. You're going to find rest for your souls. Come to me. Jesus offers a completely different way. He offers the way of grace. And for that reason, the Pharisees and scribes had corrupted God's law and had corrupted the seed of Moses. They turned law-keeping into a system of bondage. Legalism is bondage. God never intended his law to be interpreted that way. The Pharisees were essentially grace robbers. You know, there's so many grace robbers in churches today. Now, this may not be in the mainstream Protestant churches, but sometimes, and so sadly, this happens in some really good evangelical churches that are committed to the authority of the Bible, that are committed to holiness, that are committed to the gospel, and you find the heavy burden of legalism in some of these churches. They pervert the grace of God. They're manipulators. They want to... They wanna Put burdens on people, make people feel guilty, make people feel horrible. Think that they're doing God a favor. Guys, legalism is nothing short of works righteousness. It's as if to say that acceptance with God and approval with God is based on your performance. Our acceptance with God is not based on our performance. It's based on the performance of Christ. When Christ died for me, he knew every sin I was going to commit from the day I was born to the day I would die. There is nothing in your life that is going to surprise God. There is nothing in your life that's going to turn him away from you. There is nothing in your life that's going to cause him to forsake you. If you are God's and you are his elect and you've been chosen before the foundations of the world and Christ spilled his blood on Calvary for you, I got good news for you. Not one drop of Christ's blood was wasted. You have been redeemed and you will be kept for eternity. God has saved you by grace, not by works. That is the gospel. And it was the opposite of what the Pharisees taught. You know, just to show you how liberating, and by the way, anybody, I know some of you, because I've spoken to some, some of you have come from very legalistic backgrounds. Some of you come from very legalistic churches. And you've shared with me the bondage, and some of you, it still rattles you to this day. There's that, it's almost like, because you know what it is? When you're in a legalistic environment, it's like being in a cult. Because legalism really is about control. The leaders 
corrupt clergy and legalistic environments use their system of legalism to control and manipulate you. And that has every character... And by the way, every cult, every major cult had some form of legalism. Jim Jones, it was legalism. It was legalism at the core that led people to drink the Kool-Aid and commit suicide. We have to realize that legalism at its core is demonic. It's of the devil. Just to show you how liberated... Look at look what me in your Bibles in Philippians 4. Because there we have an account here of someone who was a Pharisee. Someone who lived that life of that, that law-keeping, that, that burden, that, that grueling life. And who was actually very excellent at it. Who was very good at it. And he tells us his own experience. And that man is Paul the Apostle. He tells us about his own experience. And listen to what he says in verse Philippians 3, verse 4. Though I myself, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's evaluating his record as a, as a legalistic Jew, and he said, I was flawless. Man, I, in Galatians 1, he says, among my contemporaries, there was none like me. He said, if anyone had a reason to boast, it was me. He was a prodigy. He was excelling in the Pharisaic religion. He was one of their, their top guys. He was promising. He studied under Gamaliel. He was going to be one of their top grace robbers. But listen to what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Hallelujah. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, when he compared his previous lifestyle of religiosity with a relationship with the risen Lord, he counts his previous religious legalistic life as rubbish. And this is one time where I really love the King James Version. Because the King James Version tells it what he really thought. The word rubbish, we think of garbage, right? But the literal translation is dung. King James Version uses. My life prior to Christ, all that legalism, all that self-righteousness, it's dung compared to what it is to have a relationship with the living God. What that, isn't that what God says in the Old Testament? Your righteousness is like filthy rags in my sight. To try to please God with self-righteous works is an offense to God. It's only by grace we can approach Him. That's why Paul goes on to say that in verse 9, and to be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, He's forsaking this self-righteousness, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, He knows that his boast is not in his own righteousness, but in the imputed righteousness of Christ given as a gift to those who trust in him. Amen? Amen. Let's look at the third mark. The third mark of corrupt clergy is they want the praise of men. They live for the praise of men. 
Matthew chapter 23, verses 5 through 7. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. You see, Jesus makes it very clear that the motivation for their ministry is one thing, to be seen by others. The scribes and Pharisees thrived. They thrived on the love, the honor, and the praise of people. It was their goal in life. In fact, in chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus called them hypocrites. Well, what is a hypocrite? We, we think of it as someone sim- simply who doesn't practice what they preach. But the word hypocrites in, in Greek literally means an actor performing before an audience. And he says, that's what you guys are. You guys are actors who perform on the stage of, of religion for the applause of the audience of the regular people looking at you. It's all an act to, to, to please people, to impress people, to perform I mean, what did he say in Matthew 6 and verse 2? He said he made sure that, that when they gave alms, everyone knew what they were doing because they, they made sure when they gave to someone, they made it public that they were giving. They wanted to be admired and congratulated. In, in Matthew 6, 5, they prayed in public. They made sure there was ostentatious and loud. Oh, I love you, God. You're so great. Because they wanted to be seen by others. In verse 16, when they fasted, what did they do? They made their faces all gloomy and... Oh, what are you doing today? Uh, what are you doing today, Fred? Oh, I'm, I'm fasting. Oh, it's a terrible day. Because they want everybody to feel sorry for them. Oh, look how holy and righteous they're fasting. I know I'm being a little dramatic, but... This is how far-reaching their lust for admiration of others went. Instead of seeking God's approval, they wanted man's approval. And, and, and Jesus illustrates how far first and how they dressed. It says they made their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Now, a phylactery, what is that? Well, that? Those were little leather boxes that were yay big and they had leather straps on it and they literally put it around their head and around their wrist and or around their arm rather. And these were to be worn during prayer time. And in those little boxes connected to the leather strap, there were copies of Scripture. There were copies of Exodus 13, 3 through 10, recounting the Exodus, Deuteronomy 6, 4, 9, the Shema, and Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21. They, what they did was they literally interpreted the binding of God's word on their, their, their mind and their heart by connecting these little leather boxes with scripture, with leather straps. And, and what Jesus is saying, now this was done during time, the Pharisees had created this at this point that they wore the phylacteries all the time. Could you imagine like seeing these guys walk around big leather boxes on their foreheads and their arms and they made them bigger, really big, so that you saw they were wearing their phylacteries. They wanted to make sure you recognize them. Look how holy they are. They wear their big phylacteries. They wore their fringes long, the fringes on their garment. Now the Bible required that Jewish men were to wear a tassel as a, as a reminder of the law in Numbers 15, 38 through 39, Moses says, speak to the people, or rather God says to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. However, at this time, they had made extravagant tassels. They were really long and really ostentatious and like the phylacteries, they were designed to bring maximum attention to themselves so people could admire. Oh, 
What beautiful and marvelous tassels. How holy, how religious. Guys, we see examples of this too, don't we? could find many modern examples. Now, of course, you could look at, you know, Episcopalian or Catholic clergy. They have some very extravagant clothing. Modern day, the Hasidim Jews, um, they, they carry on this tradition and they wear some really, you know, you see sometimes the Hasidim Jews, the really big hats and the really long trench coats. But, you know, we could see this even in evangelical churches. You know, we see this among the prosperity preachers, right? They wear expensive suits. They make sure that you know they're wearing a $3,000 Gucci suit. They make sure you know they know you know that they're wearing a Rolex watch because it, it's going to help you think that you could be like them if you listen to their preaching and give money to the church. And then on the other hand, there's some people who wish to make a statement by dressing down. Some people think that it's spiritual to dress down and really sloppy and to wear your pajamas or whatever or jeans and a ripped T-shirt. But even that is, is a sign of trying to draw attention to yourself. Oh, look how humble they are. They dress so down. The goal is the same, bringing attention to yourself. Anything that makes you stand out and look different, regardless how much you spiritualize it, is designed for one thing, to make people admire you, to make people think you're spiritual. And that's not godly. They also like the place of honor. And by the way, you know, so many modern churches today, I, I just want to make a comment here, you know, they're getting rid of pulpits and they replace it with a bar stool. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine recently, we were discussing about some church in Long Island, and I said, I bet you any amount of money they have a bar stool instead of a pulpit. He goes, yeah, they do. And how do I know? Just by the way the pastor dresses. It's an easy judgment to make. He, he's in his 50s and he dresses like a 20-year-old hipster. He's trying to appeal to people and you can obviously tell he's dressed way out of line for his age. But it's, but it's all designed for, for attention to self. Where's God in all this? It says something else Jesus said. They like the place of honor. They love the place and honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, vanity and ostentation go hand in hand. Now, the best seats in the synagogue were usually right up front on a raised platform close to the teacher. Now, in those days, you would have to be ushered into church, much like today. And so when these distinguished Pharisees and scribes came in, they would walk in during the middle of service, right down the middle of the aisle, so everyone could stop and look at them. They'd bring maximum attention to themselves. They'd sit right in front and disrupt the whole service. So you say, oh, look how holy the most revered rabbi is here today. Again, it was attention to self. They loved honor. They sought honor. They craved honor. It was all a big show. They wanted to be greeted in the marketplace. They wanted the best seat at banquets. They wanted to be lifted up. Oh, Rabbi, so-and-so is here. Let's stand and give a standing ovation. We see this in the church world today. Pastors and clergy, they love the place of honor wherever they go. They enjoy the place of honor. They want to be recognized. They want to be exalted. They're the ones that do go out of their way to get their names in the newspaper, to be politically connected in town to all the top politicians and, and, and to, to have a name for themselves, but they're not concerned about the name of God. And finally, they love their titles and they love their formal salutations. Rabbi. Now, the word rabbi literally means great one or master. 
Right? That's what the word rabbi means. It literally means great one. Could you imagine like being referred to as great one? This was a formal title. And by the way, you know, you juxtapose that against what Jesus says, those who are greatest among you will be least, right? This was a formal title bestowed on those in the rabbinical elite who were scholars and demanded that title to befit their position. When I was um, Pentecostal years ago, I developed a relationship with my associate pastor. Really nice guy. We got along great. And one day I dared to call him by his first name. I thought we had, you know, we were on good terms. And I never saw such a scowl. He looked at me and said, don't you ever call me that again. I worked very hard for my title as pastor. I graduated with a master of divinity. You must refer to me as pastor. Needless to say, that relationship became very awkward afterward. <laughs> but this is true. This is a guy I like, too. You know, Jesus shifts it now in verse 9 and 10. What does he say? He says, verse 8 rather, he says, but you, he shifts the attention from them to you. That means Christians. That means his disciples. You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. No one is the great one. God is the great one. We're all brothers and sisters in the Lord. And he goes on to say, call no man father on your earth. Let no one call you rabbi on earth, for you have one teacher. Let no one call you, uh, no one father, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor. All these titles to be abandoned in the church. Only Christ is the great one. Only he is the one who, who is the ultimate teacher. Father, I mean, when I first got saved, I was brought up a Roman Catholic. I was an altar boy, for goodness sake. And one of the first things I did when I read that, I said, oh my goodness, why am I calling the priest father? And I remember going to him and saying, you know, by the way, and I dared call him by his first name, and he got angry too. And he, I said, but it says in the Bible, don't call you father. And he said, but that's what the Catholic Church teaches. Oh, well, I guess I'm not a Catholic no more. That was the next stage of my journey for me. How awful is the Pope calls himself the Holy Father? How awful is that? And people bow to him and kiss his, his ring. This is, that is blasphemous. There's one reason why I could never, ever say that Catholicism could be within the pales of Orthodox Christianity. Is, and there's many reasons, but, but when you look at the doctrine of the papacy, and the reformers thought the Pope was the Antichrist, plain and simple. To exalt yourself in the place of God himself. There are many formal titles even in the church. The one I hate the most, and I get angry every time someone calls me, is reverend. Do you know what the word reverend means? It means most revered one. I am not a reverend. No one is, and, 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 and but people, you know, essentially sometimes people say, Reverend Doctor. Yeah. All these titles. Where is the Lord in all of this? Lord Bishop. You see, what Jesus really had an issue with was people who looked for glory and honor through their titles. 
I remember years ago at the uh, T4G conference, first one, 2006, C.J. Mahaney got up to preach, and he followed in the footsteps of Mark Dever, Legan Duncan, R.C. Sproul. I mean, all these guys, they're really distinguished scholars. And he says, you've heard all these preachers with a lot of letters after their last names. He goes, I just have two letters in front of my, my last name, C.J. <laughs> and I got to tell you, God bless him. He's a really great preacher. See, what Jesus really has an issue with is that people who look for glory and honor through their titles, as if we're going to assign greater worth or value to those with which titles are assigned. Jesus is saying here there's no room in the church for those who demand honor and total obedience. No leader should usurp the glory and loyalty that belongs to God alone. Instead of looking at the church like a military hierarchy, the Bible says we're a family, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Good leaders make disciples for Christ, not for themselves. Amen? All right. Well, today we saw three marks of a corrupt clergy. Next week we're going to take it to the seven woes. And while we look to the Pharisees and scribes as villains, we need to be careful. Because in the end, we have to realize that, that the Pharisees, which were a Jewish sect, that were conservative theologians, they were, they were like us in their day. They were, the, they were the ones who stayed true to God's word. They were respected and esteemed, but they lost it. And while we can apply the same principles to modern clergy, certainly politicians, this applies to us as well. We must examine our hearts and look for the Pharisee inside each and every one of us. Not just in the corrupt clergy, but in our hearts. Because the root of it is pride. There is nothing more damning and nothing more dangerous than spiritual pride. We must beware and be careful ourselves. We must be careful that we don't worship and exalt other teachers and preachers more than we should. One time I remember debating someone with something with someone, and they said, but the John MacArthur Bible says. You see, when we refer to the John MacArthur Bible, what we're doing is we're exalting John MacArthur to a place that he doesn't belong. We have to say, what does God say? So what is the solution? What is the cure for corrupt clergy? Well, look at this. Verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is the cure. Humility is the key. With a few minor variations, this is a biblical maxim found throughout the Bible. Those who seek glory and honor merely to exalt themselves among people are going to find on Judgment Day a great reversal. They will be humbled. They will be abased. The Bible gives us so many examples. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride becomes before the fall. Look at men like King Saul. Look at Nebuchadnezzar who boasted in his kingdom and was struck down into insanity for seven years. Look at King Agrippa in Acts 12, 21 through 23 when they said the words of a God and immediately he was struck dead by God. On the other hand, those who humble themselves and live for Christ and his glory will be exalted. Jesus is the model for this. He himself came and humbled himself, and now he's exalted at the right hand of the Father. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him it was of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. God is with the humble. God is with those who don't seek and demand attention for themselves. See, that's really what humility is. Humility is when you do not demand, crave, or expect attention to yourself. But you realize where that attention properly belongs, on God. This was one of the central teachings of Jesus' ministry. Pride is our enemy. Humility brings us closer to God. 
The question is, do we wait for God to humble us or do we humble ourselves? Well, I think the key is this. James 4.10 tells us we should humble ourselves before the Lord. You know, when we talk about before the Lord, that's the key. Not before men, but before God. We need to learn what it means to live quorum Deo, before the face of God. That means I live my life in such a way I don't compare myself with other people, but I compare myself with Jesus Christ. I compare myself with God. Because if I compare myself with others, I could say, oh, you know, I'm so good. You know, like the Pharisee, you know, I'm not like that guy up there. I, I fast twice a day. I, you know, I, I do all these things. Him, that, that filthy tax collector, I thank you I'm not like him. But when we compare ourselves to God, there's no room for boasting. When we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, we realize we're nothing. And so we need to live ourselves. You know, it's the example of, of, of standing in a Grand Canyon. You go to the Grand Canyon, you look at the majesty. You don't think of how great you are. You think of how great God is. The word quorum Deo literally means to live before the face of God. To live quorum Deo is to live one's life in the presence of God under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we're doing, wherever we're doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. There is no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. May we all learn to live. Corum Deo. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I, I thank you, Lord, for for this day. And Father, if there's anything I said that was was not of the Spirit, I pray that you remove it from the people's ears, but that which we needed to hear, God, speak to our hearts. Help us to be more humble, to live before your face, to live in spirit and in truth. To you be the glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.